Hello, welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name is Micah, I'm the pastor at WBC. It's great to have you with us. We're returning to a series that we started previously, looking at the signs in the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking this time at John chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 16. It's the story of Jesus walking on water. It's the way John tells it, so there won't be bits that you're expecting that aren't here. We're going to look at it and we're going to think a little bit about how it might help us understand uh, who Jesus is and what that might mean for us. Before we go any further though, we're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we put ourselves in your care and trust your Holy Spirit will open our eyes to what these verses say about you. We thank you for the gift of you revealing yourself through the Bible. And we trust that you will enlighten us as we humble ourselves and listen. Amen. Okay, we're just going to start verse 16 of John chapter 6, and it goes like this. So I'm, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, the NLT. It goes like this. That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake towards Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified. But he called out to them, don't be afraid, I am here. Then they were eager to let him in the boat and immediately they arrived at their destination. This is a fabulous story. No two ways about it. In order to understand it, we need to do what we always do when we look at the Bible, which is to make sure that we've paid attention to some of the context. And so we're going to do that in two different, three different ways. First of all, we're going to remind ourselves that John's gospel has two really key themes. One is the identity of Jesus, and the other is the idea of belief. So as we look at what this sign, this miracle tells us, we're looking through the lens of those two priorities that John brings. Next, it's important for us to remember where this fits in the wider narrative. So there are two chunks, if you like, that take us through the story of Jesus feeding thousands of people, 5,000 men plus women and children. The first part of that comes before this section, and it talks about how it actually happens. Going to take you through the events. After this passage, you get a section where Jesus talks through how it might be understood. And this bit comes in between. It's also worth remembering that for, if we look at John's Gospel and how he positions this in time, he also has this happening around about Passover. Now that's significant in two ways. One, because it means that when Jesus talks about being the bread of life and God providing bread from heaven, he's drawing on an understanding of the Exodus and the Passover and um, the escape from Egypt of Israel, God's people. But also because at this point, the people of God are remembering that their escape includes walking through the sea. And John draws on both of these things by reminding us that this is happening at Passover time. 
Thirdly, fourthly, I've lost track. The next thing is that um, at the end of that first chunk of uh, the feeding of 5,000, there is a point when the people have a kind of uh, almost like a crowdfunded coronation plan. They all get together and say, we need this guy who has been identified as um, the prophet. That's a reference to something Moses said is going to come. Uh, there'll be a prophet who comes after me sometime after me. Uh, and uh, Israel have been waiting for this prophet for a long time. And so the people in that place at that moment go, this is it. This, this is the guy. He must be the prophet. Uh, and so that they, there's this kind of determination that Jesus should fulfill what they imagine that figure to be. And finally, um, it's important for context. It doesn't add necessarily a lot to meaning, I don't think, but it's important to be aware that uh, the Sea of Galilee is a place where squalls do happen. So this sort of sudden change in the weather is reasonably normal, and it particularly happens at night. So without going too deep into the meteorology of these things, weather patterns and so on, what happens is that because the, because the lake is quite low compared to the land around it, which is kind of up here, this little dip the lake happens in you get a lot of hot air either side and then as night comes uh, that air cools and so it all rushes lower and you get air moving fast off the high ground into the the dip where the sea of galilee is lake tiberius is another name for it so the disciples although terrified and clearly this is a bit freakish they would have known that this risk existed Okay, that's, that's our context. Next thing I want to do is look at some points that we might notice. Yeah? Um, so the first is that for John, I think, this, the location in time of this story is no accident. Um, John isn't making it up, but he is highlighting to us that this story happens at night, or rather, from his point of view, it's not so much that it's night, but it's in darkness. And I think part of what John is saying is, there's darkness here, not just physically, just in terms of the time of day or the absence of the sunshine, but in terms of understanding. At this stage, the disciples don't really get it all yet. So that's sort of a, a darkness of awareness or understanding is there. Next, in verse 20, Jesus calls out, don't be afraid, I am here. Now that's the NLT translation. Other translations will say, it is I. But it, in very, some very real ways, when Jesus says, I am here or it is I, he's effectively saying, I am. It's me, I am. Some of the sort of way that's organized grammatically is the same. Now, we know that I am is a really important um, phrase for Hebrew people, for Jewish people, because when God describes who he is or gives his name to Moses in Genesis 3, he, um, sorry, Exodus 3, he says, um, I am. Uh, which is Yahweh. So any time Jesus says, I am, uses an I am phrase, he's drawing on that understanding. He's kind of declaring himself to be God, or at least equal with the Father, as he would probably put it. Next thing to note is this. It's not common to sail at night. Now, we don't really know why that happens. It's been suggested that possibly um, Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, withdraws. And the disciples then maybe wait for him to come back to the boat so they can all go together and they leave it quite late. And so by the time they set off, it's 
it's much near nearer dark than they would have planned to be and they've just decided eventually they've, they've got to go um, because home is the other side of the lake so it's not really clear but it's worth noticing the disciples were terrified now like i said there was some reasonable expectation that some of this weather pattern could happen um, but they were terrified it isn't entirely clear at least to me whether what they're terrified of is seeing somebody walking across the water or the storm that they're in the middle of and quite possibly both are pretty scary or at least quite freakish it's worth noting as well that ancient jewish tradition had the sea as a place of chaos and darkness and evil so in genesis 1 and i'm going to use a combination of translations because i'm drawing on memory uh, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. I think that's the old-fashioned version. And darkness was upon the face of the waters, or darkness hovered over the waters. So you have this idea that you've got creation. No description of how it went from nothing to something, but it's there. And then really what Genesis tells us the story of is how God brings order to what is otherwise chaotic. So in that instance, in that opening to Genesis 1, um, God brings to a situation that is all water and all darkness. He brings light and land and order and subdues chaos. And here, what does Jesus do? In a situation that is dark and chaotic and full of water, he brings order and certainty. And he takes them exactly where they need to be. Jesus is master of all these situations. He's master of the darkness. In fact, let's just do what I'm sure John wanted us to do and recognise that John is telling us in the prologue in John 1, um, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness is not going to overcome Jesus in this situation. Here goes John again, taking his prologue and weaving it all the way through everything else that he's doing. Um, so, Jesus turns up and they were terrified, but he calls to them and says, don't be afraid, I am here. And then they were eager to let him in the boat and immediately they arrived at their destination. Now, for them to suddenly be eager rather than terrified suggests that something has changed radically in their circumstances. And the only thing that's different is Jesus has appeared. And the only reason they know he's there is his voice. Don't be afraid, I am here. He called out. So the thing that gives them confidence is Jesus' presence as recognised by his voice alone. And lastly, in these points to note, the boat immediately reaches the shore. It's funny, isn't it, that the, the way that this sign is told very much focuses on the miracle of Jesus walking on water, which is very, very miraculous. I would say suddenly going from somewhere on the lake to where you need to be like that is also thoroughly miraculous. And I would imagine those guys terrified in their boat in the middle of a squall would have been mightily relieved to have arrived so immediately. Right then, what else might we pick up? So we've got some points to note and we've looked at some context. How do we go forward with this? Well, part of what we need to do is recognise that this fits in um, this little passage, these few verses fit in, not just with what came before them, but what comes after them as well. And because we're focusing on the signs rather than working our way through all the verses, 
we need to kind of point forward a little bit to something that happens a short while after. So Jesus talks through with the crowd some of the understanding of uh, Jesus himself being bread of life, uh, how God provides for his people. And, and then at the end of talking to them for a while, this crowd hears some stuff that they find is a bit hard. Uh, and it says, so we're skipping all the way forward. So this, this passage ends at verse 21. We're now up in verse 66. Do take the time to have a look at how this develops. But in verse 66, it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, by his disciples, they're talking about the, the wider group. We're not just talking about the 12 here. We're talking about a wider group of people who were following. So from this time, many disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then in verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So in, in the sort of long run from this, these guys get hold of the idea, or at least Peter seems to be speaking for them when he says so, that however hard it might be, there's something Jesus brings that just makes much more sense, that provides some sense of answer, that actually lands somewhere. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Not clear exactly what Peter means by that. There are other declarations of belief at other times, but certainly in this moment, this group of 12 are going, do you know what? We've taken you on board, Jesus. And, and if you like, that's part of why this uh, section about Jesus walking on the water is so significant, because John is able to say to us, look, they take him on board, sort of literally, physically. But they also take him on board um, in terms of understanding something of who he is. And by the end of the chapter, John didn't write in the chapters, but stay with me. By the end of the chapter, they're saying we're so on board that when other people walk away, we're going, no, we, we get that we need to be here. So this chapter kind of takes us on a journey to a climax of actual belief from literal darkness, but also the darkness of understanding or darkness of awareness in verse 17 to being able to really see in verses 68 and 69, even against the backdrop that some of Jesus' teaching is just hard. Okay, so we've had a look at all those things. What we, I'd like to do now is then come back to some questions that we've asked at each, uh, with each session, and they are these questions. What kind of God do we learn about here? What kind of God do we see? Um, and also, so what? What does that mean for us? So let's take them one at a time. What kind of God do we find out about here? So I think we find out about a God who is, has authority over evil and chaos. Who is actually able to overcome the darkness and thrive in it and enable others to thrive in it too. We recognise one who has come to us so Jesus arrived across the water to those guys in trouble where they were. He didn't say, I'll save you if you come over here. He said, it's okay, I've arrived. I've come to find you and I'm going to put this right. 
I will bring order and safety in this situation. So he's come to save and rescue and deliver. But also we have a God who is not bound by our assumptions or expectations. This God, Jesus, in this situation, doesn't meet expectations. He doesn't have to swim, for example. He doesn't have to stand at one end of the boat urging them to row hard. He just takes the boat to where it needs to be. He doesn't fit in a box. He's not only going to do what we think makes sense for him to do. He's going to do things that are outrageously different. He's not going to be bound by our expectations or by the laws of physics. So what? So if that's the kind of God that we find out about, so what? What does that mean for us? Well, I think, first of all, I'd want to say that it can be really tempting for us to feel that we know how God's going to do things. And we can end up saying, well, we, we know where God fits in this situation. It's kind of over here, just in, in this kind of space. And he's going to do what I expect him to do from there. We need to be able to say Jesus is going to do whatever he thinks is best to do, whatever best expresses his authority, his love, his compassion, his desire to rescue. He's going to do those things on his own terms. And it's vitally important that we don't make some kind of box that we think he ought to fit in. I would, of course, say that it's vital that we understand what God is like so that we are able to recognise that he's at work by doing things the way he does them, but we can't box him into anything. Have I said to you before, um, God does have limitations. He can only do things that are consistent with his character, so there's things he can't do because he's good and he can't do things that aren't good. So that's the so what. Um, Let Jesus be who he is. Don't put him in a box or expect him to fit our mold and so what well it's for us to choose to follow even when some of what he's asking or saying feels difficult it's up to us to say well he's the one who has the words of eternal life let's pray and then let's ask our questions as normal thank you lord jesus for doing the unexpected for conquering evil and chaos and darkness Would you please show us light and help us see where you are so that we might walk towards you and walk with you and and take the adventures you're inviting us to take. Amen. Right then, our three questions are these. Number one, do you remember a time when you felt in the dark and Jesus seemed absent? Remember, these disciples thought they were on their own and they were in the dark and they were frightened. The idea here is not, really isn't for you to say, well, when I was in a tough time, this is how Jesus helped me. It's not that I don't want you to be able to remember that. I think that's really good. But actually, it's worth us saying, can we put ourselves in our memory somewhere where we know how those disciples felt? Can we remember what it's like to experience that kind of darkness? If we skip too fast onto how it all was better afterwards, then it can be easy for us to forget how much Jesus does, how big a deal it is when he turns up and puts things right. Question two, do you know Jesus' voice and can you learn to recognise it better than you already do? 
Now, I've done that question in two parts on purpose. It would be easy for some of us to say, yes, I know God's voice. I know when Jesus is speaking. I have experience of that. But it's important also to be able to say, how can I get better at that? Whether I think I'm good at it already or whether I think I'm not. How might I grow and learn better the sound of that voice? And question three is this. How do we provide encouragement to others in dark times? So when things are dark and difficult, what can we bring? It can be really easy for us to feel that when we know what Jesus' voice sounds like and we feel confident of who he is and his, the part he plays in our life, it can be easy to forget that actually if we've got a strength like that, it's so important that we share it, that we're able to say to others, look, right now I feel like I've got some certainty or some confidence or, you know, I feel my roots are really deeply in Jesus. How, how can I help you with yours? Not so that we can sound patronising or superior, but just so that we can lend strength to each other. Well, that's it for part five of this series, Jesus Walking on Water. It'll be good to see you again soon and to look at the next in our sequence. We'll get to that in due course. Thanks very much for being with us. Do take care and God bless.